Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have E.T. the Extraterrestrial, starring Dee Wallace, Peter Coyote, and Henry Thomas, written by Melissa Matheson and directed by Steven Spielberg. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. It's time to continue on our summer box office Hall of Fame cast with a trip to 1982 and a look at E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Quite a big summer in 1982. A lot of lot of movies coming out. We just talked off mic about it a little bit. The one I forgot to mention that came out the week prior to E.T. was Poltergeist. So. Yeah. And then there was Rocky Three out. Like there was Star Trek Two: The Wrath of Khan. Like you had a lot to watch that summer. <laughs> We've talked a lot about how much I'm not a fan of the 1980s, but this was a pretty good year. That is a pretty good year. If you think about that slate of summer films mm-hmm. from ET to The Thing to Rocky, Blade Runner, Blade Runner. Um, yeah, that's not that's not bad. Even Poltergeist to start. That was a terrific film as well. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of it too, but I think I think that Tootsie's that year as well. I actually like that film. Yeah, so it's a good year. '82 yeah, is not the on Golden Pond ordinary people <laughs> tropes of the 1980s that I can't. That take. was the year prior. <laughs> That's funny. Well, excellent. We've got a lot to talk about. We're having some more of the Basil Hayden's Dark Rye. Cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. I really do. I really do taste like cherry notes yes i get that too in that which makes me it almost tastes this sounds weird it almost almonds tastes, it tastes like a, like a glass of wine almost yeah cherry and almond to me kind of go hand in hand mm-hmm. and i feel like last week i was thinking what's that nutty and it's the cherry but my version in the almond mm. taste. so good stuff yeah that's good i like that basil hayden's dark rye excellent well done i think they have Maybe I'm just, maybe I dreamt this, but I think there's an other, I think it's a double rye that Basil Hayden's does. Hmm. We might have to track that one down because we've done the regular and that's a good staple. And this one's kind of one to add to the armament too. We might want to, yeah, give that one a go as well. A lot of, I think our rating on bourbon goes with the value we get for price. Sure. It's pretty hard to make the case that Old Forester and Basil Hayden, it's hard to beat that quality for that price. Mm-hmm. But I'm sure we'll keep trying. Excellent. Not Let's, bookers, though, huh? Yeah, not, yeah, maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it was just the bottle. I don't know. It wasn't. It was too much alcohol. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let's get to our flight question. We're going to have to talk about in this episode, the run that John Williams had in the span of about 10 years, too, because not only this, but Star Wars, Superman, Jaws, Rares of the Lost Ark, Close Encounters, like, that guy was firing on all cylinders joke. <laughs> around this time. That's for sure. Excellent. The flight question this week that I posed to you, you know, E.T. has, I want to say, a few sequences that for a child, uh, you know, adolescent watching are fairly traumatic, whether it's E.T. dying in the ditch or the spacemen uh, coming in, invading the house. There, there's some elements, I don't want to say horror, but like I think some unsettling moments for especially youthful audience, especially when E.T. dies. Spoiler alert, but I, Wait, I, what? I, I would hope everyone has seen this movie. 
<laughs> at least once. So, Matt, my question to you is, besides E.T. or just anything, what was the most traumatic film experience for you at a, as a youth? How strict do we need to be on film? Can be. Doesn't yeah. have to be yeah. theater? Yeah, whatever. Okay, so if you're going to open it up and give me that, sure. then it's going to be Watership Down. Yeah. <laughs> I was way too young to even understand the political piece to that. Yeah. But General Woundwart is terrifying. Mm. Watching rabbits have their ears ripped off. And, and it's animation too. Oh yeah. my God. I really enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. And I sure found myself pulling for the characters, Hazel and all of the other characters that were the good guys. But that was a really troubling view for me. I think I caught that on HBO and it was maybe in a couple parts. I may not be 100% accurate on that. I do know that I caught it on HBO, but that was a troubling experience. That preceded Salem's Lot. It certainly preceded The Exorcist, Mm -hmm. which are another two that would be in play here. Yeah, But it's that, just watching General Woundwort. I had to look up his name because I forgot. Just his look, just haggard and buck-toothed and beady-eyed and ravenous just well it had to be really deceptive too because it was because it is animation it's like a cartoon and you think you're in a safe space but it's fairly extreme with its presentation i think there's two well-disguised stories that both fit in this mo- mm-hmm. this the space mm-hmm. mouse the graphic novel mouse and then certainly mm. this and they both are contingent on the same idea mouse is so good it is yeah but I think it's right down there at the bottom. Yes, it is yep. sitting right there on your bookshelf. Mm-hmm. Mine too. Um, I, yeah, that's it. it. It wasn't actually, this was the, of all the flight questions you've ever posed. This is the easiest. Yeah. <laughs> it just came to you right away. I remember my dad coming in when that was on asking like, what the hell are you watching? I, yeah, I was seven, mm-hmm. eight maybe. <sighs> and again, a no concept of like the oppressive nature of wound wart and the Nazi fascist sort of regime represented by him. I didn't get, I didn't understand that then, Yeah, but I did on a level because it's so well constructed and that was so well delivered. Nice. I don't know what they've done with that over the recent years. I don't know if they've tried to do live feature or re, I imagine there's some reimagining of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to leave the original out there in that space where that was traumatic, traumatic maybe covers it. Okay. <laughs> Shocking. Excellent. So there you go. Watership down. I always get that one confused. And there was the other one. It was with the mice. It was the secret of Nim. Yeah. 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 Good. I like, I like that one. All right. For mine, we have to go back to 1994. This is an in-theater experience. So 1994, a trip to the theater. We are watching Universal Pictures release of the Flintstones live action adaptation. Oh, goodness. And before it starts, they rolled out like four or five trailers, as you do. And one of them was for the adaptation starring Alec Baldwin of Russell McCauley's The Shadow, yeah. uh, based on the the radio um, superhero, if you want to call him. And he is. I don't know what it was with that trailer, but I flipped. We were already seated in the rows, and I remember that came on, and I got out of the rows, and I went crying and screaming down the aisle into the lobby from the trailer. It wasn't even the. It wasn't even a movie. It was just the imagery and it just didn't sit well with me. And I, I always remember just being terrified of that. And here's the, here's the best part of the story is when I kind of got around to, you know, renting some stuff from the local video store, I rented that movie to death 
at least 30 times. Yeah. I loved The Shadow. I did too. Yeah. I didn't think that movie was a miss. We yeah. might be on the minority there. I did not think that film was as miss as it was um, analyzed. Yeah, it's got a great cast and I love the vibe. I kind of, again, I, I mean, we talked about this a couple weeks ago about all these failed attempts to bring kind of obscure superhero characters to the big screen, whether it was Billy Zane with the Phantom or Sam Raimi's Darkman. And I, I think a lot of those are not bad. They're pretty, pretty decent. So it's funny that you brought up Billy Zane's Phantom because that's what I was also going to piggyback on with this. Yeah. I think both of those films. Mm-hmm outside of the DC Marvel Pantheon canon of uh, heroes that we all recognize. Yeah. We're very, very well done. My legacy with the shadow was interesting because my dad used to speak of that in such reverence Mm -hmm. from his days back, listening to that radio. Yeah. And he would try ad nauseum with very, very minimal results Mm -hmm. to explain to me how important radio was back then. Cause there wasn't much TV movies, yada, yada, yada. So their source of entertainment was the radio and he loved yeah. the shadow. Yeah. And we had some discussions about the Phantom too. <clears throat> um it's funny the Phantom might be one that I might consider going back and just watching again. Mm-hmm. Just because I think Billy Zane is an interesting character too. Mm-hmm. What was really close? Yeah. A couple of times with well, that and then Titanic. Well, the Phantom was like one year pre-Titanic and it just Died on the vine. He's pretty good in Dead Calm, too. Have you ever seen that one? Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? Okay, so to add more fi- fuel to that fire, Yeah. what happened there? Exactly. So that's my memory. Good job. Yeah, I've never... That was the first and only time I've ever screamed out of a theater, and I've sat through some scary stuff. I think you just outlined a really good superhero cast, didn't yeah. you? Yeah. Shadow, Phantom, and Darkman. Ooh, I think pretty- you just like walked in as genius. The B-list. The B, B list, the B t- the B team, Ooh. B team heroes. We could do four weeks and throw in mystery men too, and really Ooh. have a have a there you go nice little cast there. There we go, huh? Excellent. You know, there's so much new stuff coming out right away. So, I mean, where will we fit it? <laughs> we have a we have at least another month to kill. So, yeah, may as well. Might as well. Excellent. I lo- I love your choice. I kind of I kind of want to go visit, revisit Watership Down. I think that's actually on the Criterion Collection. Are you too. sure, man? I don't know. Yeah. But excellent. Well, let's get to what we're here for in our review breakdown of E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Uh, you know how they say there are uh, alligators in the sewers? Alligators in the sewers. All we're trying to say is maybe you just probably imagined it. I couldn't have imagined it. Maybe it was a pervert or deformed kid or something. A deformed kid. Maybe uh, an elf or a leprechaun. It was nothing like that, penis breath. Elliot, (laughs) sit down. It's going to be my new go-to insult. Penis breath. <laughs> there seems to be an action that leads to the stench in the mouth that sort of yeah PG movie left out prior to that, right? Man, Spielberg. Huh. Yeah, Spielberg. Yeah, yeah. First, first he has aliens drinking in this thing. Yeah. E.T. the extraterrestrial starts out in... Here's the other thing, too. I, I don't think I had seen this in about 12 years, maybe 14 years. Yeah. I used to watch this a lot on the VHS, and I remember the VHS had like a green like tape head. It looked different than the other ones. I, I kind of forgot how the movie started when I was watching last night with like the all whatever the ET race is called, the ETs collecting botany and just flora and fauna of the area. And I ne- I never remember that scene of the inside of their ship where like everything's like breathing. I don't remember that either. <laughs> 
<laughs> so where I do remember is like where E.T.'s like wandering alone out in the woods. The ship is about to, and then he's startled by the, these like hunters out in the woods. And I remember that. Yeah. And then him trying to make it back in time. And these men, these, because this is Peter Coyote's crew, right? right. Yeah, yeah. All relatively calm for what they've just witnessed. Exactly. Oh, spaceship. But uh, it kind of it kind of says that here's our inciting incident of the of the film. Very simple, and and explain. Here's an alien gets left behind. Spaceship leaves, and and we kind of get. It reminds me of the Terminator when Arnold looks out over Los Angeles and sees. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna go down there. ET does the same thing, and he kind of looks over the city, and he's gonna go peruse down there and get into adventures and mischief so we get to what the theme of the movie is right off the bat mm-hmm. it's about being on time <laughs> i'm just kidding it's not if anything what this film's about and this is interesting that maybe this film doesn't register too well with us because it's actually speaking to something that we love when we write and in films we watch it's a story about family it certainly is yeah let's talk about the family <laughs> my favorite <laughs> opening bit in this yeah is the dorks playing Dungeons and Dragons, smoking, rolling on D Wallace, like she bends over one time to do some oh, dishes, and, and, and yeah, and one of them's like going to point her, poke, poke her, her in the, the ass. <laughs> Stop that! Yeah. Yeah, um, that part to me was hilarious. Yeah. Again, it's been even longer since I've seen it than what you said. Mm-hmm. I'd forgotten all about that. Yeah. Here is Dorkville. C. Thomas Howell is the ro- C. The, Thomas the, Howell, the baller in the soul group. man, soul man. <laughs> side out um they're like what 10 12 13 yeah burning a couple heaters playing some D, hijacking some money to get a pizza yeah just dorkville on parade <laughs> but yet enough street in there to make it interesting yeah <laughs> i was sort of surprised that spielberg had the cojones to go with the guy ready to stick d wallace in the booty with his finger because mm-hmm. That's not really kind of what this film is, but it also there's a at times mm-hmm. a bit of an edge to this movie. Well, and, and I, I think this is the the beginning of that. And I like that with with when Spielberg does work with and for a director. I don't know if I'd ever want to like make a movie with kids just because like that. That seems just because you're limited hours of being able to work with them in a day, like trying to get a good performance out of them. He's really good at it, and he's done it several times throughout his career. But like the kids in his films, they have kind of like an an, an edge to them, yeah. kind of like potty mouths and like yeah, doing stuff like that. Whether it's um, I think back to War of the Worlds, um, the Tom Cruise one, eight millimeter, yeah, or no, not not um, eight, no, the film one, um, not eight millimeter. That's the one with Nicholas Cage. <laughs> eight. Oh, that one with those kids. Have that video camera and they oh find super it. oh that's J.J. Abrams but that that's essentially Didn't Spielberg produced it's that, an Ab- Amblin film yeah, yeah right mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly what's the name of that film Super Eight Super Eight there you go Amblin Nicholas that's a different that's a that's definitely not a Steven Spielberg <laughs> oh film. that's hilarious um yeah Super yeah exactly the kids in that are very like mm-hmm. the kids in this one and even Stranger Things too they kind of kind of take that that idea so yeah you're kind of setting up your kids so you have Henry Thomas is Elliot, and then you have Mike, and then little Drew Barrymore as Gertie. So that's kind of like the thing. And then what we get in kind of kind of late here with our our little sound clip is this is a, a single mother raising kind of newly separated parents, and then these kids are kind of dealing with that in their own kind of way. 
Yeah, so things get heated at the table like you were playing in the sound there. Mm -hmm. And we get a little bit of backstory from mom that really isn't going to be developed much other than the idea of a family that's brought together by an alien. Yeah. And somebody makes a comment like dad's off in Mexico with his girlfriend and mom is then torn up and leaves the table Mm -hmm. distraught over her failed marriage. Yeah. So like you said, you do get a disaffected family that's sort of struggling to find out what the new new is and introduce the uniting agent, which would be in the shed mm-hmm. or wood barn or whatever the hell that is. Did that did that scene remind you? You know, I kind of try to think of things that it was referenced in, but in that first season of Stranger Things when Will's abducted by, it, it kind of reminded me of this scene, like a scene in the shed, like oh, yeah. extraterrestrial in the shed. I know everyone loves Stranger Things. It's very popular. Um, we've talked about that off mic, how mm-hmm. much that... Is though I, I will watch it. It's not a go-to for me. That's why. Yeah. I feel like that movie takes all of the tropes from, and it does because it's designed to be a throwback to the 1980s. I think it takes a lot from this film, actually. Well, that's, I mean, it's a ripoff, right? Yeah. Even in, is that a shed? What is that? Yeah, Shaq. Sh- Shantate. E.T. <laughs> <laughs> Shantate. Yeah, E.T.'s little Shantate in the backyard. Go to that. Oh, my God. That's we all- use that term a lot, everybody, and that's, that's just like the digs. That's yeah. just not a very. Uh, welcoming domicile, yeah, shall we say? It's a, it's a little shack. A little shack. Yeah, it takes it right from it and uses it as its own. And even like later, the govern governing shadow government agency that comes to take ET from the family. Right. Stranger Things has that element too was, with yeah Matthew Modine and the undergrounds of Jesus. What is that town? Uh, the like Hawkins. Yeah, the Hawkins mm. like national laboratory, and they're all their experiments. So yeah, I, when I was watching this time, I was like, yeah, they actually. Whether it's uh, Mike and his D and D, D and D, they're very avid D and D players. Keep going, and, yeah, yeah. So they do take a lot of that, but yeah. Once ET does arrive, we kind of get that kind of interesting revealed there in the. It almost looks like 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 a crop field, <laughs> like right there, and I'm like, what are we in the farm now? Mm-hmm. But his kind of reveal, and they're both kind of kind of scared at each other, but. E.T.'s always been kind of a welcoming kind of interaction between him and Elliot, and he coaxes him back into the house with Reese's Pieces. I like Reese's Pieces. <laughs> but Eminem's passed on this. What a huge mistake. Yeah, exactly. Not only did they lose the money, but they introduced a brand new rival into the playing field and the competitive market. Reese's Pieces were developed for this film. They're kind of a little better. If you like peanut I'm, butter. I'm with you, If yes. you like peanut butter. I know Huge miss. Yeah. Can I talk a little bit about just kind of the development of this film? No. Like, <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> this seems apt to do so. So we talked about this on what our shot, The Best Movies Never Made Part 1, which yeah. was a blast. What was his name in that? BT? Boodoo and <laughs> Boodoo, Hoodoo, Poodoo, and Shark or Shatter. I don't know. Shark. <laughs> oh, yeah, Shark. That's the adopted one. There was four of them. Uh, anyway, so he tried to do... So Steven Spielberg is actually a child of divorce. His parents got divorced kind of around Elliot's age, and he saw his family go through it. He actually coped with, like, an imaginary friend of sorts, which is kind of what gave him this idea. So after the sequel to Close Encounters, which was going to be Night Skies, kind of fell through, and he's deep into Raiders of the Lost Ark at this point, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. He starts thinking of this idea again and wanting to tell a story about like his family dealing with the divorce and kind of strife family drama, which sounds boring, (laughs) 
But then he thought about this kind of imaginary friend element, this extraterrestrial leftovers from night skies, and kind of thought about melding the two together. So Melissa Matheson, the screenwriter, was married to Harrison Ford at the time of Raiders. So they spent a lot of the time on the set there. So he pitched this idea to her, and she just went and wrote the first draft. And Spielberg claims that the first, a lot of that is kind of what we see in the film. And he said it was one of the best first drafts he's ever seen in his career. Yeah, the story to E.T.'s final product is an interesting one, from Michelle Matheson to Night Skies to Close Encounters to coming off a huge, I think his, you could argue Jaws, but financially his most successful film, which would be Raiders. Yeah. This guy is on fire at this time. And I think one thing you brought up is really important, and I think this highlights mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg's success and where he's good. Rot family drama is nothing new in film. Happens all the time. We talk about it a lot. You yeah. all are familiar with it. You've seen it a million times. What you need to do to make an idea high concept is find a way to deliver it in a refreshing new way that executes on an unique idea, a yeah. unique idea. Lo and behold, if we have this fractured family, not so fractured that it's off-putting. Yeah. Because if you fracture it too much, it gets to be really dark unless you go like Little Miss Sunshine, and that's not Spielberg either. So it has to be yeah, fractured an enough. Alien running through Little Miss Sunshine be a little weird. <laughs> Very weird. Yeah. Mars Attacks. Um, <laughs> if you take it too dark, then you can't bring it back and it doesn't become family friendly. And mm -hmm. this was really important to be a family film at the time it was released. It led to its success to be able to rein it all in and then deliver the uniting agent in a, a new way. Cause aliens at this time weren't as prevalent as they are now. If anything, they were all, they, they were freaky if they're, it's. Ridley Scott's alien or war of the worlds. Like, I don't I can't even think of a friendly alien prior to this film. Well, Enemy mine with Lou Gossett Jr. Well, that's after this. So I'm saying like, yeah. right, we're in a very special space. Mac and me. Oh man. <laughs> so then when you, yeah, exactly. Talk about ripoffs. Yeah. When he comes up with ET mm -hmm. and you get the reveal, that's the same reveal for the Hulk and with the wolf man. And like, once you see him, the cat's out of the bag and you've lost that, that trope. Yeah. You have to do it in a way that's interesting enough for me as a mom or dad that's not eye rolling, yeah. but not so scary for the little one that they stick their head under the, you know, under the chair and and hide from the rest of the film. Mm -hmm. All that's huge success. Yeah, this, what none of that missed. Yeah, Jesse. This, every part of that's good. This film has a little bit for everybody. Sure. Yeah. And I Four think that, quadrant tentpole summer film. I think that's why it was so successful. Do you think? Okay, so here we go. This is the all right question of the week for yes. you. Do you think that Jaws? inspired et with four quadrant tentpole films or do you think it was just a lucky happenstance that he came to that because we've talked a lot about the importance of jaws and summer films yeah this movie i think could play in the winter but it wasn't a summer release jaws plays in the summer obviously way better than the winter so does jaws influence et directly or is it just that's what he did and happened upon it by i life? think it started the the conversation on like what could sell in the summer months and right. i think star wars just expanded on that and even looking at raiders of the lost dark like that's a that's such a great example of a summer film that's like the definition of summer to me it's like swashbuckling adventure in the desert it's hot it's exciting. Are you talking about Aquaman? <laughs> no. <laughs> that movie ripped off a billion things. Yeah. And I think he was just so in tune with the formula that once the script of E.T. kind of came about and he kind of molded it together, I think he just had a formula that worked really well. Yeah. 
And the most interesting part of this, so I, I learned something new in my research of E.T. So Columbia Pictures purchased the screenplay and put it in Turnaround. So Turnaround, for those that don't know the, the lingo, so when the production costs of a project are declared a loss on like the tax return, the rights can then be sold to another studio in exchange for the cost of development. So like whatever they spent on developing ET thus far, like Universal was able to buy for pennies, like right. a million, Coop it. two million, whatever. But Columbia was able to retain 5% profits on the film. Mm. Columbia said they made more on ET profits than any of their films made in 1982. On 5%. Whoops. Five percent off of what this film made is just astronomical, but how do you know? Like, it, it, like when you read, like if I read this screenplay, this isn't my cup of tea to make something like this. But you, you just don't know sometimes, and it does take a a visionary like Spielberg to really kind of bring it in. Like this is his wheelhouse. I like even though like there's some stuff in here that doesn't sit well or work well with me, he does this type of film very well. This is the epitome of why we like spec scripts. Mm -hmm. This isn't adapted. This isn't source material. It's completely original for the screen. Yeah. And that's really important. And I think that's why pieces of the 1980s have such high concept ideas is they didn't have to be adapted from something that already established an audience that then made it more profitable because the pre-existing audience is certainly going to see the film see anything by Marvel or any novel series adopted Harry Potter, 50 shades of gray, Twilight, all that. There was none of that. No, this is completely original source material that was troubled from the beginning, that was hijacked from two other concepts, sort of smashed into a family drama that's light enough to make everybody enjoy it in the summer and let's do it with an alien. There's no way this movie should have been made. And then when it comes out of the gate and the production costs are too high and we're struggling with taxes and we're losing money, how this movie just didn't get backburnered forever, Mm -hmm. that's a great story. Yeah. We'll have to find a way to sort of weave that in at some point. Mm-hmm. I don't even know the answer to that. Yeah. But it somehow magically worked out. And lo and behold, even on 5% ownership of the rights, Columbia made a mint. I bet you wish they'd kept 40. Yeah. I would do the math to see kind of what that was, but I ain't going to do that. But that's how important Raiders of the Lost Ark is because prior to Raiders, he did 1941, mm-hmm. and that was a disaster for it was his first bomb. So what if Raiders had never worked out, which is shocking to me. Maybe he doesn't get the sandbox to play around with to do something like E.T. Well, maybe the other thing that we're remiss to acknowledge here is Melissa Matheson. Mm -hmm. If you're Raiders and E.T. back to back Mm -hmm. on spec to her, I mean, she delivered. He can be a great director, but you can put lipstick on a pig. Still have a pig. Yeah. You gotta have a good story and I then think, be able to execute it. I think yeah. the and but and he's that type of director, much like Martin Scorsese, where they don't well, Martin Scorsese writes some of his stuff, but Spielberg mainly doesn't. He directs off of someone else's material. Hitchcockian in some ways. Yeah, Hitchcock's yeah, another similar director to that. Let's talk about the titular character here, E. T. as he's now invaded. I don't even know what's does his family have a last name? Yeah, I was gonna ask you that. <laughs> I, don't, I don't I don't know if they do. The Joneses. Yeah, the Joneses family. Let's keep up with them. We're introduced to E.T. What do you think of the design of, of this character? Um, the man who designed this guy, Carlo Rambaldi, he also had a, another uh, significant alien design. He designed the Giger head for Scott's alien. He was in charge of the retractable mouth and everything. 
Well, okay. So if we're going to play that, then I'll piggyback on it. <clears throat> he certainly is apt to use phallic-like symbols with his aliens. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you the end of that movie, which we'll talk about. And I'm not trying to be, <laughs> I'm not trying to be weird here, but ET's probing finger with yeah. the bulbous head that lights up. Yeah, he's stroking Elliot with his penis. Yeah. <laughs> here, hard, whatever. Yeah. Okay, so that works. Yeah. What do I think of him? I think that I'm really glad that it's not CGI because it gives him volume and depth. And I love all of ET in a look except for knees below, which is essentially like six inches because he doesn't have knees. He just has little (laughs) flippy feet that come out of his his abdomen. Do you know what I mean though? I think his little portly body and his little ridiculous arms and his big head make him look foreign, which I want, but still humanoid enough as he moves in an upright position on two feet, bipedal, right? So like he's a humanoid and that's close enough to us to where there's relatable. Yeah. What am I gonna say? Like he looks, he he fits the tone of the film. Yeah. Sort of horrifying, but in kind of a ugly, cute kind of way. They, They just colored him weird. I wouldn't pick brown. I don't associate brown with something cute. I'm not even, you put this on the tee and I'm not going to take a swing at it because everyone's out there knowing it. All right. So what color do you want? Purple? (laughs) Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Light blue. Light blue. I think I honed in on to. I can't believe light blue. I don't know. It's better than brown. (laughs) He, I think I honed in on what's, uh, what makes him so appealing because to me, he's not an appealing character design. I think he's kind of atrocious, actually. And I wouldn't let that thing in my house. Yeah. But it's one element. So, Matt, I'm going to quiz you here. Yeah. In Walt Disney dumb, Disney characters, what's the most striking feature to them? Oh, the eyes. Yeah. Yeah. I think E.T. has a very striking pair of eyes that are very simpatico. <laughs> they, yeah. they, they're they warming, they're inviting. It's it's not, we'll talk about the Giger alien. That thing doesn't have eyes. Right. It's just a orifice mm-hmm. and a shape. This is more welcoming and inviting. So I can see why Elliot would bring him into the house here. And the, to me, that's the element that works very well with the creature. So, okay, I'm trying to summarize then what you said. You do not like the way E.T. looks? Correct. Is that just solely because of color? It's color and I think shape. You want to be taller and more wiry? I don't know. That's kind of creepy, though. You know what I mean? Now it's like a signs alien. Right. I don't know. See, that's tricky, isn't it? Okay, so you mentioned it earlier. Mac and me. Maybe something along the lines of what that thing looks like is maybe more tolerable than that was more traditional with antennas and stuff like traditional kind of alien looking thing. Right. But he was more proportioned. ET is very stubby to me. Oh yeah. Yeah. Which. Yeah. Okay. All right. This is interesting. I wonder if any other ET review podcasts out there have talked about ET's proportions. (laughs) (laughs) But it's it's important because I've never, even as a kid, I never like, yeah, he's cute, but. Not look-wise. When he gets sick a little bit later in the film and his color then does change Mm -hmm. to like powdered donut white, do you like him, the look of him better then? No, he's kind of, he's kind of ghoulish. Okay, so you're just, you just don't like E.T. Yeah. You're like a three on a scale of one to ten. But but the eyes, eyes are working. That's a saving. And then later the voice. Oh. 
Okay. What about the ability? What about the glowing stomach? Yeah, the that's, heart a, light? that's and what okay. What about the neck? The erection ability of the <laughs> neck? And I said that on purpose. The heart, yes. The neck is an extension of the proportionate, disproportionate element of the body. So probably no. Okay. But people ate it up. They loved this thing. They loved ET in the summer of '82. There's a mar- there's a, a moment we're gonna get to. I'm sure later with Peter Coyote when he's talking to Elliot. And he actually bestows a f- pretty fair amount of praise on Elliot for the job that he's done. I think the shape of E.T. limits his ability to be bigger, better, faster, $6 million man stronger than us as humans. Yeah. And I think what that might do is create a superior position or father-like figure for Elliot, certainly older brother, if not father, yeah. to E.T., because he's so incapable of taking care of himself. So, I, and I'm not trying to defend, I love AT, I'm not trying to, like, I'm, I'm with you. I do think because he's so stubby and so immobile. Is it because he looks more childlike, being that stature? He does look childlike, but from the little bit that we get of the other aliens on his spaceship, they mm-hmm. all look like that. Yeah. Whether you're one year old or 75,000 years old, however their lifespan is. Oh, I'm going to talk about some of them later. <laughs> Hutu? We're going to talk no, about Hutu? Botanicus. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, all right. Okay. One element I do like, and it's just because it's just a total mess, is the reveal to everybody of, of the E.T., Just a mess. Yep. What do you think of, of Drew Barrymore in this one? Cute little kid in, in this, 1982. I, 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 this is pre-Firestarter, I believe. Yeah. And that other Stephen King, uh, Cat's Eye. That not, not thing. I think I think Spielberg casts kids appropriately, too. And I, I think I've been hard on Henry Thomas. This is a hard, hard part for a kid, too. you got to be, like, really involved with this alien and... Okay, okay, back up a second. What happens here in, in E.T.? Do, do him and Elliot, like, form, like, a symbiotic bond that feed off of each other's life force? Yes. Because so. it's, it's never been, like, and it, I don't know if it's even told to you in, in the film, but, like, their connection to each other, they're becoming the same person? Right. Yeah. That Okay. Yeah. Huge, huge strike that you just brought up here for me. Yeah. I'm, I don't have an answer for you other than the answer. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. And I don't know when. Yeah. They don't share any transmission that is physical. Mm-hmm. Um, it just seems to be a cognitive yeah. recognition, a dissonance of sort that is corollary to or akin to their age and possibly their like relationships in their family. And by E.T. being estranged from his parents and Elliot, the same. I know his mom is there, but she's the worst mom, not in a horror movie, parental-wise, that we've ever talked about. She's pretty bad. Yeah, she's confused and late and inobservant and irresponsible. Like, Dee Wallace as a mother in this movie is perfectly suited for a horror film, the bringing up of the next Norman Bates. Mm Mm-hmm. So other than the similarities that they share in their family dynamics, 
I couldn't pinpoint one. Yeah. But they do seem to have some metacognitive relationship with each other and that it just, is and, undefined. And it just happens. Like I'm trying to think of the scene when that's first when that's first evident. Oh, it's <laughs> it's in the next scene. It, it's in the next scene, yeah. So when E.T. Elliot has to eventually go to school, um, he can't pretend being sick, which I liked his methods of pretending to have a fever of like holding the thermometer up to the light bulb and his heating pad. So it's like 125 and his mom's <laughs> like, yeah, you look like you might be kind of sick. Again, good job, mom. You need to stay home today. You think? So E.T. staying home today, making rags in the house. And Ghost, again, Spielberg, yeah, pushing the envelope. He's going to have E.T. get drunk of some Coors, which I can't, I can't drink any of that beer. Yeah. <laughs> but then we see, like, Elliot's reaction to it, and he's getting drunk in class, falling out of his desk, and we kind of see this kind of, if he falls, Elliot falls. Right. But that's, like, the first time we see it. It's funny to watch that, even as no, a little is, kid. It it's is, funny. It is funny. Yeah, I can t- which we'll get to this later. Um, some <clears throat> of the viewers in my family found that to be rather humorous as well. Mm-hmm. But again, other than now, it's been revealed that these two have a connection. We don't know where it came from. Yeah, something something clicked. And if that's the case, and Elliot's and Et's actions represent what the other is engaged in, then. I don't think that's consistent because language should then not be an issue at all. And that is a bit of an issue in this film, like ability to communicate lingually. Well, not for Gertie. Gertie's the one who's able to teach teach him. Oh, God! Elliot. What? Elliot. Elliot. I taught him how to talk now. He can talk now. Elliot. Look what he brought up here all by himself. He just dragged all this what stuff upstairs. E.T., e. can you say that? Can you say E.T.? E.T. 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 I like that. Like, I like this. The rest of the E.T. orifice might not be working for me, but that's able, that kind of interaction and that kind of. Ah, cuteness is not the word I want to use, but it kind of Why? is. Yes, it is. Yeah, it kind of is. It, I'm able to kind of get on board with that at the, at that point. That's nice. I just have to close my eyes when I do it. So you don't have to see the thing. Yeah. Talk. <laughs> it's an alien sounding voice. I'll give you that. Yeah. But no, you're right. If if there's some type of cognitive like homing beacon between these two, you're right. Communication shouldn't be. They should be able to talk telepathically. Right. Like Professor X. Yeah. Right. Something like that. <laughs> yes. Who also doesn't have the most capable, usable feet. <laughs> you know, not very mobile either. So are we about at the midpoint of the film here? Because I think we get to the crux of what this film is about, which is we have this alien here in ours. Can you imagine how much those houses cost now? Yeah. Like $2 million probably? She had one of those Spanish houses that probably cost $20,000 and double indemnity. Oh, gosh. No, no. <laughs> twenty. Yeah, now. I love that line. Yeah, that's I know good. what you mean. Yeah. yeah. I, I, th- I thought about that while watching. I was like, man, those houses must be so expensive. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's like the poltergeist neighborhood too. Mm-hmm. Suburba, suburbia LA? Yeah, that's... Uh, I know what the, the town that it's in. I'll look it up here in a second. So we have this bond in the crux of we have this alien here in this suburban California neighborhood. He can't stay here. And even Mike says earlier, he's like, Elliot, he ain't looking so hot. Mm-hmm. Like he's already deteriorating a little bit. So E.T. says through the television in a 
Buck Rogers comic book is able to say, I need to communicate with my family. my god they taught him how to talk right so this is this is the film yeah let's find a way to communicate with your people that way we can send you back because you can't stay here so can i i let me ask you this again once you get the alien into your house and then welcome him and get over the fish out of the water and start to integrate him into your community it's very fish out of water. it's like reverse fish out of water right yep then I guess the question is, what do you do with the fish? And the answer in this movie for me is, let's hurry up and get him back in the tank. Yeah. And I wonder if that is a good story arc for you. Like once we get E.T. and figure out that the two of them are friendly, the next immediate action is find a way to get him home. I guess so. is Again, I'm, I'm going to say it, it's for me, it's simple and it, well, okay. This isn't some super intellectual film. It's summer family fodder. So I understand that, but it's, it, I think it, for me, it works against the story. Like we got him in here and now let's just hurry up and get him out of here. I think it, it, it works enough for me just because we've set up a, an antagonist, yeah. which is this government. And did you notice too that other than D Wallace, that all the adults aren't really shown they're in shadow or shown from like the waist, waist down the teacher until Peter Coyote's reveal in the house humanized. Yeah. Once that they show some vulnerability. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, yes, Mm -hmm. I did notice that. Yeah. It's done right to create a harsher tone for adults and a softer tone for the kids that live in this adult world. Mm. And until you can make your peace with the gentle nature of childhood, you don't get screen time. Yep. There you go. And Peter coyotes, you talk about some things that work in the film and doesn't, Mm -hmm. that might be the moment that works the most for me. And we'll Mm. get to that later. Um, because, the FBI or these feds or whoever we want to call them. This is like the government they don't want you to know about. <laughs> yeah. The alien government. The pre-X-Files. Yeah, oh, yeah. Right. This is a skull or molder unit. They're hell-bent on finding this alien for the sole purposes of running tests on him. Yeah. And the same thing for, alien, for Elliot is to take this alien and get him home. Mm-hmm. I'm just going to say it. Neither of those two are super compelling for me. I don't think E.T. is going to take up arms against some force in on Earth. Like, that doesn't work either. But I, I don't love either one of those storylines right now. Yeah. It's just, it's just, it's preference. I hate, I hate the meddlesome cop that has to show up just so that they can be killed in the serial killer film. I hate the, the faceless government agency that just gets in the way to create an active resistance or antagonist. Yeah. I, I, I prefer to not have those in there. 
It's just and it's just preference. And if ET just hangs out here on Earth, and I think it's more Mac and me. Not that it would be that bad, but like that's what that movie is. It's him hanging out, and the whole family like shows up. You know what I kept thinking about? Yeah, watching this when ET's getting sick and trying to phone home. I kept thinking about Back to the Future. And what I kept thinking about in Back to the Future is when Marty goes back to 55 or whenever that is, the lack of resources that are available for him to get back to his time, that's interesting Mm -hmm. and that's truly compelling. If E.T. is going to make some intergalactic phone call, doesn't he need something more than some aluminum foil duct tape and a CNC? Isn't (laughs) what we need... The pursuit of these resources, you know, and then like that's a better story. Yeah, and you could still have the feds chasing him, and he's getting sick, so you've got the the ticking time element, and it's um. Well, Back to the Future has like the best ticking time clock element, which is the the the, the photo, and if oh, Mar- yeah. Marty and every his family are just going to be totally wiped from the timeline, yeah, um, unless he gets his parents together. But both hinge on the same essential conflict. Yeah. Fish out of water, out of time. Mm-hmm. And then can you, whether it's you can rig up because you don't have 50 gigawatts or whatever it is, so you have to use a lightning strike, which then has to be, all of that mm-hmm. works brilliantly. Yeah. This is just a bunch of stuff that he finds in the non-last-named family's house. In the house, yeah. That allows him to make this phone call. And it could, it just could be better because oh, yeah. this movie's almost two hours. And what I'm also going to pose is... Could trim thirty from thirty minutes for, <laughs> or take the thirty minutes post ET's death prior to his resurrection of watching Elliot sit there at the cryogenic crypt, and then the feds just move a bunch of hazmat shit all over the place. It's just watching them move X to Y to Z, like just boring. I like that the cryogenic crypt, right? They <laughs> zip him up and put him in ice in this crypt thing. Let me tell you the element that works the best in this film. And if okay. this wasn't in their man, this would be a slog for me. Like, this would be a really difficult movie to watch. So it's Halloween night. E.T.'s rigged up this phone home machine. They got to go test it out in the forest. And it's the moment that we see flight for the first time. But it's what accompanies the flight that's so remarkable. Goosebumps just listening. This is a great score by John Williams. Again. Yeah. What do you expect from like he's 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 the best. He, he is. really is. I have another question for you. Okay. <laughs> is the element of the Christ-like feature of ET lost on you? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because resurrection and I, elevation. I right? was gonna bring that up later because it's very evident to me. We got some stuff to talk about before then, but when E.T. emerges from the cryogenic crypt van in front of the, the friends, and it's all like, Whoa, and then he comes out, and he's got like the shroud. He's got the, <laughs> the shroud. 
<laughs> the Shroud of Turin? Yes. <laughs> he, he looks like Jesus. Well, and then think about earlier. Yeah. The plant. Yep. It's dead. He brings, that's the Lazarus plant. Mm-hmm. And then we get the elevation. And yep. whether you want to say, well, I don't remember Jesus ever elevating people. Yeah, well, but he except walked on water. The whole premise of where you're leaving when yep. you leave the earth and elevation to a higher, a higher plane. It's not lost on me because we had the same upbringing. It was very, it's why when I watch Superman, it's like so obvious. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah, no, I totally picked it up. But it was that scene in particular. I was like, man, that's like Jesus coming out of the out of the tomb after day three. I think that works for me. Yeah, which strangely, mm-hmm. it'd been interesting though if there if they had been like three days in between ET's death. <laughs> oh, that would have been strange. It'd have been very obvious for me then. <laughs> it could have been on the nose, and instead of done it at Halloween, it could have been Easter. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, that's um. No, it, 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 that works for me too. Mm-hmm. But yeah, Williams' music makes this movie for me. I'd like to, since you're the music guy, I'd like you to find a John Williams score you don't that like. that I don't like. That would be Man. some take some work. Yeah, because yeah, he he always brings it, and and we talk about story a lot on Rice Smile Film Screenplay. We talked about acting performances, and now that we've instilled this new master distiller feature i was thinking back i think i gave escape from new york i gave it to carpenter's score i gave it to tim burton's music i'm probably going to do it again today with john williams score like music to me is so important in a film to me that's more than the screenplay can make or break a film because music to me can evoke tone without showing or saying anything that little clip i played for you tells you exactly how you need to feel in that scene triumphant uh excited it this is the moon this is the poster of the film Mm -hmm. and you know when et's dying that theme gets much more melodramatic when when music is scary it helps you get more scared it's it's such an important part of filmmaking to me i think the thing that williams does really well in his scores is when he needs it to be light and happy and elevated there's a plenty there's a heavy dose of strings Mm mm-hmm and when he doesn't, and it needs to be grounded or morose or, or sad, then it's more bass in like a tuba sort of sound, mm-hmm. not a brr, brr, but, and if you can find the same marching song, same, same, same sound. And when it's triumphant, he brings in the horns. I'm thinking of like that throne room scene in New Hope. Okay, right. Yeah. Good. The versatility of the familiar sound is just so smart because you create then an anthem for the character. Yeah. E.T., Raiders, Superman, Jaws. Harry Potter. Think about it. Jurassic Jurassic Park. I mean, come on. Yep. Every one of those characters has, did he do Star Wars? Yep. The Emperor's March. Did he do Star Wars? (laughs) That was a joke. Um, All nine of them. Yeah. No, yeah. See what I'm saying? I'd love to do a John Williams shot. And I don't even know what that is other than like talking about like playing some of his, some of, some of the tunes that like the themes they did and just kind of talk about them. Be fun for like a rice mile t-shirt or something. Put like nine different songs of, or themes of Williams out. And the first person that can on Instagram respond to all nine correctly in order. <clears throat> have be, a little contest. It'd be cool. That would be fun, huh? I'll have to throw in something to trip them up. Like, Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, exactly. That's a great score, too. Yep. 
So anyway, this is kind of the downfall of, of E.T. and Elliot because, well, the phone home machine does look like it's working. They spend all night out here in the forest. Elliot has, like, crazy fever. No one knows where E.T.'s at. And he's, like, dead in the ditch. Right out of the movie Hoosiers. And that's weird, too, because he was all, he was pretty brown. And, man, he's he's like a ghost down there. He's got to be dead at this point. I thought, like, this was always trouble. That, that image was always troubling for me as a child. Me, too. I was just like, yeah, man, like, they're really going to kill this thing. And they're going to make him look like that. And then later, and I forgot about this scene, when they're all laying in the bathroom and they show uh, D. Wallace for the first time and he's like, he's dying and he's like, ah, ah. and then that's when the spacemen come in. Like, that's a that's like a lot in like the span of five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> him laying there in the little creek, he just looks cold and sick and frail. There's like a raccoon chewing on his head too. As, yeah. Yeah bad look mm-hmm. and for young people certainly traumatic i used to not like that part because it just was hard to look at him he this i said it earlier he looks like a powdered sugar donut to me it's not a good look effective to me he looks more like a like, like a dog poop that's been like out in the sun too long bleached out it gets kind of crusty and and white. <laughs> quite a library of knowledge there my friend that's more so of him the image of et just not working for me okay but yeah this was always very traumatic and yet the guys in the space suits that kind of come in and then it gets a little kind of like horror film like and they're like kind of grabbing at the people in the family through the windows bizarre i think that part's stupid yeah they wouldn't especially the guy at the window. It is just trying so hard. Like, I hate that part. Yeah. I, don't, I don't mind that they finally have found E.T. and they're going to get him. Like, story-wise, it makes sense. But at the window and they walk over there is so Night of the Living Dead, just bullshit. Well, here's what I don't understand. I forgot this, too, but the, 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 the government goes into the house and, like, wires it for sound or something. They're doing some work in there. When Michael brings... Oh, I'd like to see how Michael brought E.T. back all the way, too. They, they should have just been waiting for them when he walks in the door. So much simpler. You lose the scare piece of them invading the house, and they make them look like some version of hazmat astronaut, right? I don't even think they'd be wearing astronaut. They look like the moon men. They'd just be suits. Yeah. Just show up with a bunch of suits and badges and enough guns to... It still is going to work. Yeah. But them trying to find some nook and cranny in this house as they're being descended upon by countless amounts of Peter Coyote's troops. Mm-hmm. I, that that part to me does not work at all. I just hurry up and get on with it. You know, it was surprising to me. I always kind of thought like Peter Coyote was the bad guy. Mm-mm. And he's kind of very sympathetic the entire time. It's, you talked about the scene too, when he goes up to Elliot and he's like, Elliot, I've been waiting for this my entire life. And He's like, he's like, I'm kind of glad that you found him first. Nobody could have done a better job than you. Yeah. Well, let's get to that then, okay? Yeah, so yeah, no, he's dying. They're, they're dying. We're in the the Fed's incubation. and They're in the house though, right? Outside the house and these tunnels yeah. and vans. I don't know and, why I always thought like my memory was like they were like offsite somewhere. I think they're, they're still in the house. So... Next to each other, bedside by bedside, we're watching Elliot and E.T. now experience the dark side of that relationship they had, that cognitive 
collective shared consciousness. Mm -hmm. And as E.T. is perspiring, so is Elliot. And I think we're led to believe at this time that E.T. makes the conscious decision to sever that tie, which then does him in, but allows Elliot to continue to live. You think E.T. killed himself on purpose? Yes. To kind of give them, well, but the time, because then, then, then home comes. Because here's what else I think. Yeah. I think that the CNC telephone system isn't working. And I almost think that when he goes into what we're perceiving as death, I'm not trying to be silly when I say this, yeah. it's a communicative hibernation. Like he needs to lock it down so that he can get his little heart light to turn on. I kind of thought that too. And yeah. send the beacon because mm -hmm. that, the heart light beacon is the same essential beating beacon that's on the spaceship. I definitely thought that. I was like, I was like, ET probably like faked his death because all these guys are poking and prodding at him. And yeah, he needs to go into hibernation to kind of like help the signal. Right. Which I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's not told to us. That's just an interpretation. That's from two guys that have a lot of film really trying to have to dig deep to find that. And if that's the case, I think it's a miss or we're just wrong and yeah. he really does die. But then, <laughs> so let's play that out too because I gave this some thought as well. Mm -hmm. If he does die, then Elliot, then Elliot has to act as the resurrective power to bring him back. And yeah. what does he say? I love you. Oh my God, is it that simple, Jesse? Yeah, he's in, that's too cute for me. That's too cheesy. I love you is all it took. Yeah. Because he's loved E.T. from day one. Yeah. I don't, mm. But that kind of stuff doesn't play well in film for me. That's just too, ooh, like. By the time he gets to I love you, and this is allowed to happen because Peter Coyote allows the cryogenic crypt to be opened and Elliot to say his last goodbyes. To the body bag. To the body bag. It's got to have been. I feel like he's dying for 30 minutes anyway. And then after Elliot gets the green light to come back and say, E.T., I miss you, thank you, whatever. Oh, this is what happened. E.T. phone home. Phone home. And then he's glowing. Does this mean they're coming? Yes. E.T. phone home. E.T. phone home. We watched this film in Spanish class in high school. And E.T. phone home in Spanish is E.T. Yamakasa. <laughs> so you hear that every time. Every time. I think that's <clears throat> evidence that what we were posing is correct. The signal just wasn't strong enough from the stuff that he made at Elliot's house. And he needs to stop all primary system functions so that he can send the beacon of return the question then would be... That's the logical man, though. If we sat down here with Spielberg, you know he would tell us that love brought him back. That's just like, that's... You know that's... No, I know. Yeah. You're right. And I guess that gets to the bigger question on this film, which we'll address here in a few minutes, um, which I'm not going to talk about now, because like I said, we'll get to it. But I'm not entirely sure that works. And my biggest problem from the time that White... E.T. pasty bleached out E.T. gets home to the return. That 25 minutes is really a slog for me. I hate the feds invading the house. I think that that's just overwrought and stupid and doesn't make any sense and just contrive to be scary and stupid. Yeah. And then this bit right here, which is the quintessential moment in E.T. and Elliot's relationship hinges on 
three words. And all Elliot had to do was utter them. I will then argue against how stupid that is with this. If they have a cognitive connection, a bridge between each other and a shared collective consciousness, ET's going to know that from the beginning. And if you're freaking out as you're dying and the person next to you is going through a like scenario, it's not because they're scared. It's because they are missing you. You ought to be able to deduce that this person loves me. None of that works. It just doesn't work. Now, I'm being way too critical on a children's film that's for families. <laughs> and that's what I was talking about. Yeah. <clears throat> but we're doing that anyway. Yeah. I think all of that could have been avoided with a little bit more attention paid to a couple points prior. If we had introduced the heart light earlier, which was when the ship left and ET's, they really, it's glowing, but they really blow that up and then create the connection in the viewer's mind between the two of those. Yeah. And then the see and say, and as ET's getting weaker, him not being able to like illuminate that enough, like in the field, then we're getting something's wrong and that's the right. Yeah. Just, there's no build up. It's all build it up and pay it off. There's yep. no setup. It's just paid off. But we get to my favorite part of the film now, which is the race to get ET back to the ship, which is this bike sequence, man. I love this. This was, I, anytime I'd watch it, I would always like fast forward to this part. I don't even think I had a bike at that time, but it made me want one. It just seems so much fun to so just cool. be like being chased and like, and they have ET in the basket and they're like, it's like a race to get, to get him there in time. So they re-released this film in 2002 with, I don't know, maybe Lucas had gotten into Spielberg's head, but they, they went and digitally did some stuff to E.T. And one of the things that they took out, and this is just shocking to me, is they took the shotguns out of the Fed's hands when they lift off to walkie-talkies. I'm dumb. Why? <laughs> I, I hate changing things like that. We talked at nauseum about the Star Wars prequels changes. I don't think a filmmaker once it, once it's in the can and it's out and we've seen it, you shouldn't be allowed to touch it. There should be rules. Agreed. And I understand like the technology wasn't up to the point, but then what you made there—that's the representation of a time. It's like a time capsule too. I just not. I'm not really sure why that was important. It's too to violent. Like they're going to shoot ET and the kids. I like it. It's an added element of threat. I like that. Like that. That triple kind of take into Elliot's face too, when he's like, "Oh my God, they're going to kill us." Yeah, and then when you actually watch that, they actually really never do point the guns at them. It's just the. It's just the threat. I know. Yeah. Yeah. But that works for me. It makes it more exciting. Sure. And taking that out kills it. Right. I'm glad that my version of it is still the intact version. Mm-hmm. So then they fly off to the forest here where the, you keep saying, it's speak and say, it's something, something. Yeah. yeah. Speak and spell. There you go. That's it. It's speak, and, speak spell? and spell. That's what it is. Okay. Sorry. And, uh, and yeah, here comes the ship and here's Peter Coyote, D Wallace, Drew Barry, the, the whole, the, the friends. And then we get the final kind of, kind of goodbye. And like ET wants Elliot to come with him. He says, come, and then he's like, stay. And I'm like, no, didn't you? You can't stay here. He's dying, and you can't go up there because you'll die. Like this this, this friendship, relationship, brothership, fathership, whatever E.T. is supposed to represent for Elliot in this film, 
it can't exist other than memory. Right. Sentimental. Mm-hmm. It's a goodbye. And he's got to go home because that's what's been the whole movie. But can I walk back one quick step? Mm-hmm. Maybe a third of the way through the film, <clears throat> you see Elliot in the forest when he's putting out the Reese's Pieces to try to bring E.T. Oh, yeah. Find E.T. Mm-hmm. And we see Peter Coyote. Coyote. Mm-hmm. Looking at, I guess, E.T.'s tracks. And you can tell that he's he's tracking him. What I think would be a simple solution to the speak and spell versus the communication through E.T.'s glowing stomach is after they build the communication piece for E.T.'s family and leave it in the forest and just kind of like let it go, <coughs> which again is very Stranger Things mm-hmm. also. Right, especially the second season where he's trying to communicate with the aliens as he builds his, Mike builds his little thing or whatever that guy's kid's name is. If when E.T.'s been captured, we see the feds with the homemade telephone Mm -hmm. and we know that, oh my God, he found it and he broke it down and it actually hasn't been sending this message the whole time. Then we've solved this problem of how did E.T. communicate? Because since they've had it and they've destroyed it, it obviously wasn't working. So then that gives E.T. one last chance, which is I got to take the last bit of energy that I have. They left it out there because it's still there when they go back. The Fed should have that. And like when they're in their... <laughs> well, they, they even talk about it. He right. says, did that thing work? And he says, yeah, it's doing... The, the, the guy says it's doing something out there. They leave it there because when they go, when they land on the bikes... It's still there. <laughs> right. Peter Coyote should have been tracking it, found yeah, it, brought yeah. it back. And then when we go to the containment field where the, the research facility where E.T. and Elliot are, are sequestered, Elliot says something like, just leave him alone. His family's coming. They'll be here soon. And he says, sorry, son, they're not. And he shows him the contraption. Look, I found your little field phone. And then, oh, shit, everything that we were hoping to get E.T. home has been undone because this guy's had it the whole time and it hasn't been working. Then we solve all of this problem. That'd be a great act three too, because what you're supposed to do in act three is break your characters down to their lowest moment. Right. And you squash all hope. You squash the communication. ET's dead in the cryo crypt. And then now it's the race to the end. Yeah. So I don't know what you're saying now. So now they're out here in the forest and he's just like, Oh, and his like thing goes and do, 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 do. That'd be great. Or when Elliot said, yeah, exactly. Yeah. When Elliot says his family's coming and then we just see E.T. in his final goodbye and his last state of white paciness say, Elliot home, whatever. And then eyes shut. And then we get him in the cryo chamber and Peter Coyote says, do you want to say goodbye? Open it up and we see a glowing ember in there. And then Elliot goes in there and we can still even play the love, Jesse. Mm-hmm. Elliot goes in there, unzips the cryo bag, grabs E.T.'s little hand, the light comes in full effect, and through love, we've empowered E.T., and now the signal can be heard by mom and dad alien, and here we come. And I know we're sour mashing this, but that was so navigable. Yeah. And it could have done what is essentially in every screenplay and story because it works, and that's the second act reversal. Yeah. Everything is now worse than when it started. All of this has been undone, and we're actually in a worse state. Not only is he not home, he's freaking dead on top of it. Yeah. Just a huge miss. Yeah. Oh, that'd be pretty good. 
But the final kind of goodbyes between Elliot E.T. and the family and everyone involved, I like I like this bit. I think it's been built up enough that E.T.'s invaded this family's life. They've grown to become acquaintances. They like him. They don't want to see him go, but everyone realizes this is the only way. Even Peter Coyote. What's his name? I don't even know his name. Look, doesn't matter now, but I'll look it up. <laughs> He's Peter Coyote. He's Mr. Ken Burns. Mm-hmm. This this is it's really well done and it's it's Spielberg's direction it's John Williams great score it's the performances of all the kids especially like I said this isn't an easy role for a kid to play keys no that's right get yeah, keys not an easy role for a kid to play and I think he he does great in this in this in this little bit here yeah and as they say their goodbyes and ET gets on his ship and zooms off across space. We're left feeling saddened by ET's departure by triumphant again. The music is telling us don't if the mu- if we want needed to be sad here, Williams' music would be do 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 on like a piano, right? But here I'm gonna play it here in a little bit. It's like bum bum bum. It's very triumphant. It's like no, don't be sad. Be happy. This is what needed to happen. This this is a great ending to me. I agree. And what I can say is it's completed and we don't need any more story. Mm. There's no need for E.T. to come back. We've tied up all loose ends. It's completed. It's not a franchise. It was a singular, a story, not plural. That's good. Yeah. We don't get that a lot. Right. So I have some loose threads to tie up here before we get into a, a few things. Movie made a ton of money, $10.5 million budget, $792 million gross. It became the highest grossing film of all time when it came out. It beat Star Wars. Now, that's impressive. That's very impressive because um, we talked how crazy Star Wars was when it came out. To me, the biggest crime of E.T. isn't even something in the film. It's for the elephant in the room right here. The summer of 82, there was too much, and they all just can't, got cannibalized by the cuteness of E.T., so Poltergeist came out the week prior, June 6th, and then like June 13th, I'm mixing the dates up, but that like June 15th, E.T. came out, huge film, number one for many consecutive weeks, I believe has like the, the record for like most consecutive weeks at number one until Home Alone. <laughs> crazy. <laughs> Very crazy. A record that's probably going to hold forever now. Uh, Nothing's going to beat Home Alone. It's, the, the market's too different now. Right. Two weeks later, June 25th, The Thing comes out. The same weekend as Blade Runner. Jeez. E.T.'s number one with $13 million. Blade Runner's number two that weekend with $6 million. The Thing's all the way at number eight with like $3 million. Like it, Same company, Universal. Terrible. Cute alien. Department. Crazy in, or horrific alien. This film should have come out in October. Yep. Or November. Yep. February. It might have found its audience, but that is a far superior film to this. That's not even in the conversation, (laughs) for sure. Right. (laughs) To me, that's the biggest crime. But that's just because I love, and Blade Runner, too. I I love both those films. You know, I don't love Blade Runner, and I will also echo that sentiment. That is a superior film for people that like film. Yeah. E.T.'s superior in movies. Well said. And that's good. Movies win often, not film. So it became a marketing machine. And for that Christmas, everyone wanted a piece of E.T., including Atari. So Atari had to, they didn't have a game. And they said, you got to get a game out before Christmas 82 because kids want it. So Atari turned out this 
horrendous E.T. game. We had it. <laughs> you would fall in a pit, and you would make E.T.'s neck come up so that you would float, and the whole thing was get to the spaceship there was a before guy chasing it left you. before the guy caught you. Horrific. Yeah. It, on all the, the, the top 10 worst games, it's like number one forever. They made too many. No one wanted them. So they went and buried them in the desert in Alamogordo, New Mexico. They just, they weren't recyclable. So they just like, just put them in concrete and bury them. Cause we have like 5,000 of these things or it was even more. That's crazy. <laughs> so crazy. Bad. There was a ride at universal studios, uh, called ET's adventure. I got to go on ET, uh, universal. I think it's still in the Florida one actually. You got to ride in in, in the, the the bike um, apparatus um, as the feds are chasing you, and then the second half of the ride is like it's a dark ride, and it's a, a trip through ET's homeworld, Botanicus. Botanicus is like ET's like Miyagi, who's like his teacher, and he leads you through the ET world, which is just too weird. And I'm so glad that we never had to see that on film. Mm. But I got to tell a funny story right here. So okay. I was talking with um with you know, with Blake. Blake came on the Empire Strikes Back episode. He said when he was a kid, there's a it's one of those ones. It's like the Peter Pan ride at Disneyland where there's like a replica of like the city. Mm-hmm. So it's like replica of Los Angeles. And he like had convinced himself when he was writing it that that city was real. So he was like, I'm gonna jump out of the ride to test my theory but he convinced himself that it was a real city and that he'd die if he did it either way had he actually jumped he would have destroyed the model but he would have like probably broken his leg and his arms they had to shut the ride down i was like i was like blake i'm glad you did thank god i went down a crazy rabbit hole yesterday to like talking about et because I, I found this whole wikipedia thing about amusement park like incidents and i saw there was like a, an et ride where someone like got stuck in this machine and like broke their wrist or something and i took a picture of it and i was like blake you could be this on could, this list right now this could be you this could be you right now Jeez. they took that ride out though and they put the revenge of the mummy roller coaster which is is pretty good et has a crazy legacy it was nominated for like nine academy awards like Pet pitcher, director, didn't win those that year. I think it was Gandhi, mm-hmm. which I don't even know if that, is that any better. <laughs> uh, it won for music, sound, sound effects editing, and visual effects. Okay. Uh, the sound is interesting because it's it's a guy, and I can't remember his name now, but it's the sound effects guy from French Connection and The Exorcist. Oh, nice. It did, did that. So I think he has three Oscars for sound design. It's awesome. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's it's a very iconic uh, film. Made a lot of money. It's the number four highest grossing adjusted for inflation. A lot of people love it. A lot of people went to go see it. It's just I don't know if it's aged well. It's not uh, the right thing. I just I don't think I've ever been like a real fan of this film. Okay, Matt, what's your favorite tasting note of ET? Uh, it's the Peter Coyote talk. He's talking to Elliot in that research chamber. We finally get a little humanizing element to the feds that have been chasing these people. And you come to realize that the reason wasn't necessarily for science from him. And I'm led to believe that it's his squad. But it was more an unrequited childhood fantasy that was never fulfilled. And it goes back to what you said earlier and we talked a little bit about, which was the non-humanizing element of the adults in this film until they're able to either adhere or become comfortable with a childhood version of life. 
So when he recounts what hadn't happened as a child to him, we get a humanizing piece. And I love that he's actually holding Elliot's hand through that, that plastic window with mm-hmm. the handhold in there. Uh, that's, that's for, that's me. a good scene. Uh, that's, that's my favorite scene in the film. That's really good. Yeah. I mean, I mentioned mine earlier. It's the bike scene from yeah, getting ET on the bike in the, in the basket, the chase from the feds, the flight to the forest. I've always loved it. Um, just like when that music kicks in and, and just, yeah, just them like jumping over the hills, which doesn't make any sense. Like I just, it just seemed fun to me. And I always wanted to just do that as a kid, yeah. like just like bike like that, <laughs> bike on top of a cop car and pop the, the siren. <laughs> right. All right, man. What's the, oh my God. I need to take a shot moment of this film. Are we going to pick the same one? Is yeah. it ET in the ditch? It has to be. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, design of the alien is pretty effective here. If yeah. that's what we both pick, and I know you don't love him, and I'm not really in love with him either. But, like, the pale dying Look, version of him is... Looks great. Yeah. Yeah, like, that thing is in real trouble. You can tell. Yeah. I've always, like, wanted to just, like, fast forward through that part just because I'm just like, yeah, that's just... Just things, like... Gruesome. In, in water. Ooh, yeah. Faring a little bit better than David Dunn drowning out in a puddle of water. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. Matt, who's the master distiller on E.T. the Extraterrestrial? I guess it's Spielberg. Um, it's not his best movie, but he's in the middle of a pretty nice run here, and I think this only adds to the totality of how how rock solid that legacy was for that eight to nine year period. Yeah. Um, I think to be able to take something that is as overdone and common as family drama and broken dynamics and then find a way to stitch it back together with the most unique solution, which would be an alien who is also estranged from his family. There's a lot of things working there. We talked about it, so Mm -hmm. we don't need to get into it again. That all, that all works fairly seamlessly for me. So, you know, I'm wondering, Jesse, is it maybe Matheson then instead I'm not, I wish, I don't know exactly the original draft compared to final draft. I know she's got sole writing credit on it. So I'm assuming she did most of it. So then I'm probably going to walk that back and say Matheson. Okay. I'm going to, but it's probably a hand in hand on this. Can I do two for one? Sure. Did I just steal one of yours? No. So I'm going to say that conjunction together is the master distiller. Awesome. Okay. It's John Williams for me. Yeah. I think when we did our Raiders of the Lost Ark episode, I think Mark posed us the question of our top three Williams scores, and I think I did Empire, Superman, and Harry Potter. I forgot how good this was. This score was upon revisiting it this week. I listened to it a lot, and I might bump that into the like the third slot there. Wow! Like I think it's it's a really powerful score he has throughout and yeah like i said all the feelings it makes you evoke and what i'm going to play here is it's just incredible so he's mine love it to those guys to those guys before we give our ratings uh something i wanted to bring up i guess et's never been on an international flight before but one thing you're not supposed to bring back with you is any type of like flora or fauna because of the ecosystem that you're bringing it into i think et took that plant with him and i think he probably wiped out his entire race with whatever bacteria he brought from earth yeah they quarantine et for two weeks at least (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, no one wants to see the sequel to E.T. because he wiped out his family. Like, E.T. or Elliot's family is just hounded by government agents the rest of their life. What an awful film. I thought it was allergies. <laughs> Lo and behold, it was a pandemic. It was a pandemic. <laughs> what rating are you going to give E.T.? Yeah, gosh. <clears throat> I think four of the five have been considered for me in this. It's not rot gut. Yeah. I thought I was going to give it rot gut yeah. initially. It's not rot gut. Yeah, it's not that bad. There is a uniqueness to this film with the family dynamic and the alien. I try to save my single barrel for truly high concept avant-garde films. This hints at that in some ways, but I have to walk that back because this is the movie, movie, movie. Mm -hmm. So I think all that being said, and Wells too low, it's probably call minus. I think this is just a movie, mm -hmm. a movie that hasn't aged terrifically well for me. I'm not a seven-year-old kid anymore. Yeah. That being said, we're going to do something here in a little bit that's going to support what I wanted to talk about, and that's the rating in this and why it's so difficult. If we're measuring the longevity of film, then things like Vertigo and Sorcerer, yeah. Unbreakable, those kind of films are going to age very, The Exorcist are going to age really, really well. All four of those films I just mentioned did not do well upon initial release. You might say the, the their th ratings would be rock gut to, to well. The Thing. The th okay, The Thing. Mm -hmm. Halloween. Yep. So I'm not exactly sure how to kind of square all that with myself because I liked it a lot as a kid. I watched it as much as you did. Mm -hmm. It was a double feature at, at Eastdale Twin with Clash of the Titans, and I probably saw that every weekend for like 15 weeks in a row. Yeah. What a good double feature, huh? Mm -hmm. Clash of the Titans and E.T. as a 10-year-old. Harry, Harry Hamlin. <laughs> God bless Harry Hamlin. But it hasn't aged well, but it also hasn't aged well because I'm a snob when it comes to film. Yeah. And so if I remove that, it, it's just call. I mean, it's, it's, it's just call. Yeah, it's maybe, just call. Maybe we have, like, me and you have, like, an E.T., like, Elliot connection because I'm, I'm, like, in the same wavelength with you. I don't think it's age well just because there's not a, a, so much for me to relate to it anymore because I'm not Elliot's age. I'm not going through these adolescent adventures anymore. Like I have a job, eight, nine to, eight to five kind of a thing. Yeah. It's a different type of kind of interaction. I can understand the brilliance of what Spielberg did here in his story, but what what kills it for me and what gives it, it's just a call. It's like, as you always say, it's the most call, call film I could ever give a rating to. Yeah. It's a good movie. Um, but I, I, I don't revisit this one as much as I revisit Raiders and Jaws or Jurassic Park. I, those, those are like my three favorite Spielberg films. I love those ones. This one, it's just, it, it's, it gets too cute. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I, I, I like a little bit of edge and that's nothing against the film. It's just my personal preference. There's a couple mistakes I think that we talked about that could have really elevated the script for me, but them being mistakes didn't destroy it either. Well, this is weird too, because the film that came out the week prior, I think handles a lot of the same things effortlessly better. And that's right. Poltergeist. Right. Yeah. That family dynamic amidst a supernatural crisis. I think this movie is designed for children with enough in there to where adults would be entertained. So let me let me ask you a question before we get to the, okay. the nightcap. If you take a purely children's film, like let's say Snow White. Okay. Do you think children in 2020 
have as as a much appreciation for Snow White as you and I might today. I don't know. I think I will. I think I would enjoy Snow White more than like my daughter. I just think the artistry of of it then, like them making that back in 1939 is remarkable. 38. Yeah. So the point I want to make is it's possible for children's films to age Mm -hmm. better. Yeah. And so again, to add another layer of, or another piece to this puzzle or add to more of this conundrum of where I am with this film, I'm not sure if I should rate children's films on how they age because as a child, I didn't like Snow White other than watching the, the, um, evil queen become the old lady. Yeah. That was my favorite part. And that part's still fucking amazing. It's good. The art in that's amazing, Mm -hmm. but I would appreciate that film. I do. I appreciate that film more now than I did then. Mm -hmm. So let me give you one more layer to this, this impossible story. (laughs) The jungle book. I, that's my favorite Disney animated film. Yeah. I loved it as a kid. I love it as much today. So it's possible that I can still like it as a kid as an adult. Sure. So if I have Snow White, which was like a C film for me as a kid and like an A plus film for me as an adult, a Jungle Book, which has always been an A and an A and E.T., which was an A and now is like a C. Fuck, I don't know. Decode that. I don't, I don't know. I don't even know. Yeah. I'll tell you another one from this era. It's it's another Amblin Steven Spielberg production that I love way more than E.T. And I watch it maybe once a year. It's The Goonies. Oh, man. No shit. Yeah. yeah. And that's just like that's just like, you know, friends being friends, getting into an adventure. Okay, yeah. Yeah, to that. (laughs) Excellent. Well, let's get to our nightcap question. It's pretty good. (laughs) It is. That instrument is a timpani. It's it's, it's kind of like these like kettle drums, and it's that boom, boom, nice. boom. And whenever that gets is in a score, I love it. It's it's like my favorite instrument. So Matt, why don't you go ahead and hit us with that nightcap for the week? I wanted to get the opinion of someone that hadn't seen the film, and there's not many of those people out there that are over the age of 25. So I didn't have to look any further than my own house. And when I reviewed this film this week, I made sure to watch it with my daughter. We went through. A uh, rye light version breakdown, and then I had her give it her own rating, which I thought was a pretty unique scoring system. She does listen to the show, um, the episodes where we don't swear too much. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I'd probably, you know, get shot you're, by the wife. You're but, not rolling in that, letting her listen to the Exorcist episode. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. Um, she wants us to do a rock cask here in the not too distant future because I think she's got it pretty bad for the rock. But <laughs> anyway, um, here is. Excellent. Her take on I, this. I can't wait. Today on Rice Smile Films, we have a special guest. This is Ava. Ava, welcome to Rice Smile Films, and would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I am Ava. I am seven years old, and this is my dad. <laughs> yeah, I am the dad. Ava, so you just finished watching E.T. for the first time, mm-hmm. and I have a couple questions, and then we'll get to your review. Does that sound good? Okay. First question I want to ask you is, as you were watching this movie, did you determine who the bad guy in this film was? And if so, who was it? I definitely thought that the, that the FBI was totally the bad guy. They were always trying to capture E.T. in custody. So, pretty sure that was them. Why in the world 
Would the FBI want an alien? Well, we they probably wanted him for research for out-of-the-world creatures. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why they tried to put him in custody. Okay. So if the FBI is the bad guy, then the other question would be, who is the good guy in this movie? I think the good guy would be Elliot. He was he saved him, and when he was going to die, he was always there to help him. As we were watching the movie, you and I had a pretty in-depth conversation about the plant. Remember the flower? Yes, I do. So... Can you explain what you thought the flower meant as you were watching the movie? Why was the flower so important in this film? The flower was really important because I thought that that was like the life form of him because when he touched the flower at first, it grew back and it was kind of like younger now, like one years old, like it was new. And when it started to fade away, E.T. started to fade away too. And I think the flower is a big part in the movie, actually. So do you remember what you told me when the flower was dying, what you said you thought was going to happen to E.T.? Can you say that again? Yes. I thought that E.T. was, like, gone. Dead. <laughs> like, forever gone. And he kind of was. Yeah, he was, kind of. What is it that you found to be the funniest part in this movie? Um, I can say, Daddy. I don't know. I don't have one, really. So you didn't see anything too funny in this film? I thought it was kind of emotional. Okay. What did you think was really emotional in this film? What made you emotional? Just, like, all the friendship and the happiness. Mm-hmm. And then the sadness at the end. Yeah, a couple tears rolled down your cheeks, didn't they? Not a couple. It's okay. It's supposed to be like that. Well, why was that so sad? Because I really liked E.T., and I thought that he was going to be really good friends with Elliot. Yeah, but he's leaving, huh? Yeah. Do you think that that is a good ending to the film, or do you think that you wanted one other piece at the end to sort of make you not so sad anymore? I thought it was a good ending. I mean, he should have been at his home after all, but... In the beginning, we all saw that he ran off, and when they sounded the sirens, he wouldn't come. And then the people started looking and finding him. Well, not finding him, but kind of. And then um, the people, they came right close to the spaceship, and they actually saw it lift off because they couldn't wait anymore for him. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you think it's E.T.'s fault then? No. That he doesn't make it back in time? Probably, because he was just chasing a bunny. Right. Okay. Um, Was there anything in the movie that scared you? Um, A little bit. When Elliot was looking in the crops, Mm -hmm. when uh, um, E.T.'s face just was in the crops, it kind of went and made me, like, jigger. Do you remember what other movie you saw that had aliens and crops that kind of scared you, too? Yeah, it scared me a lot. Yeah, it was signs, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah, you have bad parents. (laughs) All right, so um, I think that's a pretty good breakdown, but I want to get to the most important part of this discussion, and that's your rating system. Okay. You designed your own scoring for this. Do you want to explain how you're going to score these films, and uh, then we'll go ahead and give this movie a grade? Okay. Tell tell everybody what the highest grade you can give a movie is. Unicorn. Okay, why a unicorn? Because I like them a lot. Okay. What's the next level below unicorn? Fairy. Okay, fairy. Why fairy? 
Because they're magic. Okay. Um, what's below fairy? Troll. Okay, why troll? Um, because if... Because trolls are kind of grumpy. Okay, <laughs> they're kind of grumpy. And then, do you have another rating? What's below troll? Witch. Oh, That's witch. the worst. Which is the worst? The witch, because it turns the whole movie upside down. Okay, so if we have the best movie being Unicorn and the worst movie being Witch, what grade did you give E.T.? I think it was probably a fairy. Okay, a fairy, why? Because, I mean, I liked it a lot, but I don't think it was good enough to an excellent, okay. like A plus excellent. Okay. Like on my spelling bee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So, um, yeah, I think that would be my rating. So not a unicorn, but definitely not a troll or witch to give it a fairy. So yes. pretty good. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, there you have it from the Mouths of Babes. Ava, I want to thank you so much for your appearance on Rise Smile Films this week. And is there anything you'd like to say before you head off? Bye. <laughs> there it is. Bye. Okay, you have it. There it is, our rating from a first-timer. <laughs> That was awesome. That's cold. That, that, that warms my little heart. You have a budding little film critic in the house there. Unicorn, fairy, troll, and witch. I love the explanation of witch. It turns the film upside down. I would totally give Ser- Serenity a rating of witch because <laughs> the film got turned upside down. And how. Witch. Oh, that was awesome. Ava, thank you. I know you're probably going to listen. And that was great. Good job, honey. Yeah, thank you. It's, it's so funny. I... I my favorite part is like you watch signs we let you watch signs she was scared i see so much of ava and myself growing up like watching films and just kind of like gravitating and like the willingness to like try things out and and things like that i should be so lucky brother yeah that's that's great so excellent well cheers matt cheers jesse that was great to talk about et it was it was great to see again like i said it had been at least 14 years for me to kind of revisit my childhood but next week we're going to do something pretty cool. And last year when we did the same cask, we did the same thing. When we talked about Ghostbusters, we did a like screenwriting 101. We took the Rye audience to, to, to class and we showed them all the terms. And like, if you want to write your own screenplay, this is like, like a format. Here's the, the beats and the things. So we're going to do that again. And I think, probably an even better film to even do that with. So next week, we talked about it a little bit in this episode from 1985, Back to the Future. So great. I can't wait. It's been about a decade since I've seen this. So you got to come watch this one with me. Yeah. Well, yeah. I watched next Saturday and we might have to take notes. <laughs> well, we're watching. Oh, yeah. So we'll do the same thing. We'll just kind of break it down from a script's perspective, inciting incident, the beats, act one, act two, act three. We'll talk about the payoffs, the setups, Mm -hmm. because this film, I think, does it so well in spades. And yeah, I'm I'm just I'm very much looking forward to it. I've always been a big fan, a big fan of this one. Yeah, it's going to be a good run next week. (laughs) Not so much the the other films in the series, just this one. Two's not too bad. Yeah, it's all right. All right. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Bifco. I know. Think of the title alone, Back to the Future. A super high concept. Super high concept. It sells the whole movie right there. I'm I'm, I'm very much excited for next week and then what we got coming up after that. But, yeah, we're just waiting here until we got some new films to talk about, taking a trip down memory lane and revisiting some old classics. So We'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. 
Cheers. I got to go. I got to go take the, the, the C and speak and go uh, make a communication to my home world because they're looking for me too. I hope it's not a witch that comes and picks you up and takes you back to what the hell's the name of it. <laughs> What's the name of his little Mr. Miyagi? Oh, Botanicus. Botanicus from the planet Botanica. I was almost going to say hoodoo, poodoo, and voodoo. <laughs> the evil that you do. Excellent. We'll see you all next week, everybody. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you get your podcasts. And be sure to leave us a comment at Productions at gmail.com. E.T. The Extraterrestrial is property of Universal Studios and Amblin Entertainment, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers.